You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 18th of September 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Carlotta Rebello, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next 30 minutes, Charles Hecker joins me to chat through the day's front pages. Plus, we hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, and his regular Saturday column. Perhaps you're surprised how collaborative making a magazine needs to be, no matter how high you inch up the masthead. There's a balance of confidence and humility passion and patience needed from everyone in the room if you want to make something worthwhile and still remain friends afterwards. And from one Andrew to another, then Andrew Muller will be here to tell us what we learned this week. We learned a surprising amount about the testicles of a friend of a cousin of Superbase and Starship's hitmaker Nicki Minaj. Well, maybe we didn't have to learn that after all. That's all ahead on Monocle on Saturday here on Monocle 24. France has recalled its ambassadors in the US and Australia for consultations as a protest against the security agreement between them and the UK, which ended a $40 billion French-designed submarine deal. The French foreign minister said the exceptional decision was justified by the situation's exceptional gravity. The alliance, known as AUKUS, is widely seen as an effort to counter China's influence in the contested South China Sea. Russians have started to vote in the country's parliamentary and local elections, in which President Vladimir Putin's United Russia party is expected to win. In the meantime, a smart voting app devised by the jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny has been removed from Apple and Google ahead of the opening of the polling stations. The leaders of 31 Latin America and Caribbean nations are gathering in Mexico this weekend to participate in the region's CELAC summit. Countering the influence of the U.S. is expected to be at the top of the agenda, along with the upcoming elections in Chile and Colombia. And French President Emmanuel Macron has inaugurated a posthumous installation conceived by the late artist Christo that encases Paris' famous Arc de Triomphe monument in silvery-blue recyclable plastic wrapping. I'm Carlotta Rabello, and that's your news on Monocle 24. Well, it's time now to have a browse through this morning's newspapers. And if you can hear some rustling in the background, you might think it's the newspapers, but it might be an army of cinnamon buns and cardamom <laughs> buns that Charles Hecker brought into the studio. I'm, of course, joined by Charles Hecker, the senior partner at Control Risks. Good morning. Good morning, Carlotta. And thank you for this army of, uh, of treats. I'm very pleased. when well, I, I We have some heavy news it. today, so we need some fortification, I think. We need the calories. Excellent. Well, let's. Uh, speaking of heavy news, let's start with this um, quite incredible uh, diplomatic spat that we just heard here in, in the headlines, but obviously all the newspapers have it across the front pages today because the, this kind of came through late last night. That's right. So this is in the newspapers. This is online. This is this is everywhere. We have, as you reference at the top of the broadcast, a major international diplomatic spat. 
uh, brewing and getting worse. So what's happened is, as you mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, there has been a diplomatic pact between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. that is generally aimed at containing China. At the heart of this alliance is a deal for the U.S. and latterly, really, the U.K. to build a fleet of nuclear submarines for Australia. The problem is that Australia already had a contract to build diesel-powered submarines with France. Uh, and nobody told France about this deal. And so France found out that, first of all, um, three of its biggest allies um, have made a pact that didn't include it anyway, either militarily or diplomatically. And then Australia canceled the submarine contract, which itself had its difficulties. It was late. There were cost overruns. There were all sorts of problems there. But anyway, Australia canceled the submarine contract with France and then started to and then signed a contract to build new submarines with the U.S. And France went ballistic. Um, and that is not very delicate diplomatic language, but the moves have not been very diplomatic either. France accused the United States of stabbing it in the back. It called President Biden's behavior Trump-like, which you know is meant to insult and offend. It canceled a gala event that was uh, planned in Washington to celebrate U.S.-French relations. And then, just as you said, um, late last night, it pulled its ambassadors out of Washington, D.C. and Canberra. And that has never happened before. France has never done that to either country. And France has had diplomatic relations with the United States since the 1700s. And I mean, the, France keeps saying that uh, it's only recalling the ambassadors for consultation, but it's the gesture that matters here. It's reading between the lines. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what France has done is it, it has put itself in a way in a really difficult position now because you have to wonder... Um, first of all, France is saying that it's going to escalate this crisis, and there may be further diplomatic moves coming from France. That's one. Two, um, the rest of France's allies, and that includes the rest of the, Europe the European Union, has said absolutely nothing about this. So France is out on a ledge here. And then the third thing is... You're right about this being called back for consultations. There is only one step above that, and that is calling them back permanently. And you, want, you have to wonder what's going to be the trigger for France to send its ambassadors back. What's the de-escalation in this dispute that will restore at least some sort of normalcy to the relationships. Now, what I find interesting is that the ambassadors that France has recalled are the US and Australian ambassadors. And even in all the communication, it seems like the UK is not even part of the deal. It's almost like we were already angry at you for <laughs> any other reason. So what is this on top of that? Because it seems the UK is just going by. <laughs> well, yeah, so this is basically, this is a very French diplomatic diss at the UK saying, well, you know, frankly, you weren't really all that important in this deal in the first place. So your role in this alliance with Australia and the United States is not important enough for us to withdraw your, you know, the ambassador that we have in your country. And, and France took a bit of a slight at, at the UK by saying that the UK was really just sort of trailing along and kind of following along behind the U.S. So the U.K. has been spared some of the drama, but it was really packaged up as an insult.
Now, one of uh, one of the points that I find interesting as well, and going back to what you were just saying about how, um, you know, the EU has been suspiciously quiet on this, is that the danger of France um, not being on the same page as Australia and the US is that Macron does have the influence to push EU foreign policy and push EU's agenda towards a less US-centric way. Um, Will it get to that point, though? Surely uh, they will make amends at some point. Well, you're right. So many different trends come together around this particular moment, and that is Macron and his vision of a more independent Europe when it comes to foreign policy not being sandwiched between China and the United States. It also comes on the eve of the German elections where Merkel will be replaced and Macron himself wants to become sort of the more prominent of the the Franco-German partners in forming EU policy. And then the other thing is that, that e- the EU is supposed to consolidate, is supposed to work together when it comes to foreign affairs. And here is one of its biggest countries striking out on its own. It's absolutely riveting, this whole thing. And I I really look forward, you know, kind of like looking between my fingers, like watching a horror movie. But I kind of look forward to seeing how this all ends. Well, and I'm sure we'll be discussing this for the coming week without a doubt. Well, Charles, let's move to another story that you have on your list. And uh, one, indeed, that we mentioned in the headlines, and that is across the front pages, well, has been for most of the week and definitely today, which is on the uh, elections. The parliamentary elections are now under way uh, in Russia. Polls opened uh, yesterday and they're uh, voting uh, today and tomorrow as well. Uh, what does the New York Times tell us? That's right. That rustling that you heard in the background was the actual newspaper and not the wrapping around the cinnamon <laughs> bun. Not uh, yet. Exactly. <laughs> there is a beautiful story across the front page of the print edition of the New York Times today um, that has a massive sort of four column color photo and then jumps inside to a full page layout, which is a really nice piece of work for print journalism. And the headline is How Putin Shapes Russia. And the bureau chief in Moscow for the New York Times traveled from Murmansk in Russia all the way up in the north to Grozny, all the way down in the bottom in in the Caucasus in southern Russia, and stopped off in a series of cities along the way to take the pulse of Russia on the eve of of parliamentary elections, which you're right, started yesterday and they're going out through the weekend. The voting has been stretched out um, as sort of a pandemic management kind of... um, move and we'll see how that goes. Uh, but it's just been really interesting to see how um, Anton Trajanovsky, who's the bureau chief in um, Moscow, how the opinions that he collected along the way. So he started in Murmansk where he was speaking to a political activist who said, I fear that if things start to change, there will be blood. Um, president Putin will remain president Um, I think his term ends in 2036 or at some time in the reasonably distant future. Um, But this election really is about the stability of the regime. Um, It is widely anticipated that Putin's party, um, Yedinaya Rasiya, United Russia, um, will maintain its control in parliament. Um, But the run up to this election really over the past six months or a year or so has seen some of the harshest political repression in Russia that we have ever seen. And the the micromanagement of this particular um, electoral cycle has really been astonishing. Um, And and it's a fascinating piece to read through. 
It, it, it is impressive just to look at, you know, it's inevitable when we have a parliamentary election in Russia, everyone always makes the same comment. We already know the outcome. What is, what is really the point of covering it? But as you say, we... In recent memory, there hasn't been this much blatant defiance uh, of the regime as it has happened um, now. And everyone knows who Alexei Navalny is, for example. Right. Everyone followed that saga. Um, I mean, Moscow is your former uh, haunt. So <laughs> do you feel like there's a momentum here for any actual change at a local level? Or um, is it still too early to tell? I think that was part of the issue, and that is that there was momentum for change, mm. and it has been absolutely brutally broken, um, you know, from sort of the, the, the headline-grabbing activities, you know, when Navalny was poisoned um, and, you know, evacuated to Germany only to return to Russia to then be thrown in jail. Um, but what's happening at a level below this is all of Navalny's associates, um, a number of prominent Russian opposition figures, their associates, their deputies, their assistants, their researchers, their co-workers, they've been arrested, they've been harassed, um, they have left the country, they are in exile, um, and a series of non-governmental organizations uh, that were working in Russia have all been shut down and labeled as foreign agents. So there was this momentum. There was something going on. It wasn't massive. It wasn't uniform. It wasn't everywhere, but it was there. And it triggered this this incredible hammer from the Kremlin. Well, and even uh, an app that um, uh, Alexei Navalny and his followers had created to kind of uh, tell people how they should tactically vote in this election to try to defy um, uh, Putin's party to get the majority of the votes. Even that has been removed from uh, Apple and Google stores. So so there's no chance of people even accessing that. Um, will that momentum return? Oof. I know it's the big question that everyone is asking, but it is it is tricky when we, we can tell and we can see it from afar, of course, um, all of this kind of all the puzzle, the puzzle getting all to get coming up together and think, well, 2036 is a long time away. Is there time to build it back again? This is this is something that that. You know, both in Russia and in other places, you know, when the same individual and the same political party is in office for decades, I mean, remember that Putin became president of Russia uh, when Boris Yeltsin resigned on the eve of the millennium in 2000. Um, when somebody has been in office for now 21 years and with quite a long way to run, and when a single political party has dominated a country's political life, for a prolonged period of time, these things usually don't end well. Um, the problem is that, yes, this momentum will at some point in some manifestation return. I don't think that Russia has yet developed an efficient mechanism for transition in its political system, whether it's just from one person to another, mm. one party to another, one system to another. It hasn't figured out how to do that. It doesn't know how to do that because it's never really done it before. Um, and, and that will lead to either a crackdown on a returned level of momentum or that momentum could actually surface and become incredibly disruptive. That's what's yet to play out.
Well, Charles, do stay with us. We'll have more from you in a moment. And one of the quotes is to finalize my thoughts on this piece now, on that piece you picked up on the New York Times um, that uh, the Moscow Bureau Chief writes is how Russia is a country in which nothing changes until everything changes. And I think that's the best summary of that story. But indeed, we'll be back with you in just a second, because now it's time to turn to our own Andrew Muller and find out what we learned this week. We learned this week that Wales had annexed, either accidentally or stealthily, a fair whack of England. A petition was submitted to the UK's Parliament about something or other, but rejected on the grounds that it was the responsibility of the Welsh Parliament. However, the whatever it was had something to do with the catchment areas of the Severn and Wye rivers, which, though they indeed rise in Wales, flow very much through or around Shrewsbury, Worcester, Hereford, and Gloucester, all of which are in England. So we learned that either England is cunningly dumping unwanted counties on Wales, or Wales is surreptitiously seizing portions of England. Here with further explanation is Monocle 24's Greater Cymru Desk Chief, Thomas Lewis. Thanks, Thomas. But this was far from the greatest crisis to have beset the United Kingdom and indeed the world this week. For we learned a surprising amount about the testicles of a friend of a cousin of Super Bass and Starship's hitmaker, Nicki Minaj. Look, I don't write the news, okay? It is what it is. But we also learned how inextricably enmeshed the worlds of politics and entertainment have become, to the enlargement of the dignity of neither. And we learned that, while the dignity of neither of those two things had been enlarged, two other things had. No, don't. No, 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 The wretched saga commenced when Ms. Minaj departed from her usual metier of high-velocity hen-party hip-hop and ventured into vaccine disinformation. She tweeted to the effect that, and we think we've got this right, though don't really care all that much, that a mate of her cousin in Trinidad after receiving the jab had been struck impotent, cursed with swollen gonads, and subsequently suffered the heartbreak of having his wedding called off by a disappointed intended. We learned, for starters, that Minaj's cousin's mate is actually pretty quick on his feet, however uncomfortable such movements may presently be for him. While there are ailments congruent with such symptoms, they are not caused by receiving COVID-19 vaccines, but generally by other behaviours indeed likely to result in the returning of engagement rings if discovered. Minaj's cousin's mate, should he in fact exist, a question to which we will return, is doubtless not the first to have tried to style such an indiscretion out. We learned, however, that this was to have consequences. Well, quite. Do we have a sound effect of an escalator to indicate that matters escalated? 
A member of the British media felt it necessary to test Minaj's assertion against the wisdom of the UK government's chief medical advisor, Dr Chris Whitty, who was not having it. There are also people who go around trying to discourage other people from taking uh, a vaccine which could be life-saving or prevent them from having life-changing uh, uh, injuries to themselves. And many of those people, I regret to say, I think know that they are peddling untruths, but they still do it. In my view, they should be ashamed. Witty was supported in this stand with positively Churchillian resolve and a spectacular handbrake segue by the Prime Minister. Uh, and I, look, I'm, I'm just on that, Steve, I, I'm not familiar with the works of, uh, or not as familiar with the works of, of Nicki Minaj as I probably should be, but I am familiar with, with uh, Nicki Kanani, a superstar GP of Bexley, who's appeared many times on uh, before you, uh, who, who, will t who will tell you that vaccines are wonderful and everybody sh uh, should get them. At which point, Minaj struck back in an accent very nearly as heavy on the Woodhouseian affectations as Boris Johnson's own. Yes, hello, Prime Minister. Boris, it's Nicki Minaj. Um, I was just uh, calling to tell you that I thought you were so amazing on the news this morning. And I'm actually British. By this point, however, the inanity vortex was well and truly a whirl, with top US boffin Dr Anthony Fauci struggling not to wonder out loud why at this point he's even bothering attempting to preserve the health of people who would rather take medical advice from unqualified yahoos on the internet than people who have some idea what they're talking about, like, for example, himself. Dr. Fauci, is there any evidence that the Pfizer, the Moderna, or the J&J &J vaccines cause any reproductive issues in men or women? The answer to that, uh, Jake, is a resounding no. Can we get a resounding no? No. But lost amid this brouhaha was what we did not learn, but really should have by now, which was the lesson about the perils of paying any heed whatsoever to attention-seeking celebrity nitwits. For we learned from Dr Terence Dale Singh, Health Minister of Trinidad and Tobago, that the entire story was a load of Nicki Minaj's cousin's mate's affected glands. One of the reasons we could not respond yesterday in real time to Miss Minaj is that we had to check and make sure that what she was claiming was either true or false. We did, we, and unfortunately we wasted so much time yesterday running down this false claim. There is absolutely no reported such side effect or adverse event of testicular swelling in Trinidad or I dare say Dr. Hines anywhere else. None that we know of anywhere else in the world. This is probably all still going on if you're late to it, but fancy joining in. But not... Now this. This is a segue. If you're listening in the German settlement of schmallenberg Oberkirchen. Gotta get the mail through Pony Express. Gotta get the mail through. Gotta get the mail through. No time for rest. Which actually, for reasons we shall shortly arrive at, you're probably not doing either. For we learned that the internet in schmallenberg oberkirchen is slow, as was demonstrated by a local magazine which tested an online transfer of 4.5 gigabytes of photos to a destination 10 kilometers away against a messenger carrying a DVD on a horse. The horse won, 
we further learned on actually bothering to read all the way to the bottom of exactly the sort of fleetingly viral story that we lazily assemble this monologue from every week, that it was actually datelined last December. But that's probably just how slow Schmallenberg Oberkirchen's internet is. Look, you think this is easy, you come up here and do it. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks, Andrew. And I'm not sure we needed to know that much from Miss Menage's cousin's friends, but it's it's all good. We'll learn more next week. <laughs> Charles, you are still with me here in the studio. And we, as much as we have learned there from Andrew, let's not comment on any of those stories because I think we've given it enough airtime. And in the, instead, let's move to the pink pages of the Financial Times. That's right. Moving swiftly on. We're just <laughs> going to go right to the front page of the FT at the bottom with a headline that says Thailand to reboot ravaged economy with 10-year visas for wealthy visitors. And so the first question that enters my mind and probably every reader's mind is what does Thailand consider to be wealthy and how quickly can I get over to Thailand and get my 10-year visa? Well, give us the answer, please. Right, exactly. So so wealthy is this. um, You will need to invest from 250000 to $500,000 in Thai property or in Thai government bonds. Now, what you get in exchange, what you and your family, should you have one, get in exchange for this is the right to live and work in Thailand for 10 years. Um, and, you know, that's pretty amazing considering most people are very happy after 10 days in Thailand. Um, to be able to stay there for 10 years is quite attractive. And this is exactly what um, Thailand is counting on. The FT tells us that prior to the pandemic in 2019, Thailand had 40 million visitors. I mean, that's... That's a lot of visits. That's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, that's absolutely shocking. And And... The government estimates that it will take years to recover to that level in tourism. So this is a way of of, of bringing the punters back. Um, They want to attract a certain type of wealthy international jet setter. And I see my chances dropping by the second (laughs) here. Um, And this, they say, is the perfect life for a digital nomad, people who can work completely wherever they want. Which is one of the many buzzwords emerging from uh, the pandemic is everyone seems to be a digital nomad these days. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't seem like, of course, it's an awful amount of money, but considering you can live in a country for 10 years, it's an investment that seems attainable. Yeah, well, so this is, you have to think, on the subject of investment, you're absolutely right. So this is an investment that you make. So you have to think of a few things. First of all, hopefully, you're going to get some return on this investment. And the money that you invest in Thai property and in Thai government bonds will grow and provide you with some income. Um, Thailand also expects two more things, though. There's a little bit of a sting in the tail here. And that is that if you are of working age, in addition to all of that money that you've got to spend up front, you've got to have an $80,000 annual income. If you are a retiree, and let's say you invest your pension in getting this golden visa, um, you still have to have a $40,000 a year level of annual income to qualify. So I guess this is to prevent people from sort of throwing themselves at the Thai state and becoming dependent Mm -hmm. um, on the Thai welfare system. Uh, But, you know, it might 
be doable, Carlotta. Are you considering it, Charles? <laughs> I, you know, I would, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about, like, what have I got in my wallet in my back pocket right now? And, and, and it's, it, I'd have to really scratch together um, the, the funds for this. Well, uh, the FT says that um, Thailand is joining also uh, Antigua and Barbuda and also Barbados, who have similar schemes. So maybe you can pick between one of those uh, <laughs> and, and find your ideal scheme for relocation. Here's, here's, here's the <laughs> ultimate golden visa, is if all of these countries did a sort of buy one, get all of them all together, exactly. then I'd really consider this quite seriously. Well, if anyone is listening in the foreign offices of any of these countries, we have a golden idea here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's... It, it, of course, this is a trend emerging from the pandemic now, but even prior to that, I think particularly in European Union countries, we've seen that trend. I'm, I'm from Portugal and my own country has done the golden visa scheme, which is criticized at home and applauded uh, outside, as all of these schemes tend to be. Um, Malta has one still going on, Cyprus as well, and I'm sure many others. So it's not a, a novel idea, but the fact that it just seems so far away, <laughs> the investment also seems grander, If even if in reality it's not. You know, it's interesting, though, because Portugal set a very good precedent with its golden visa program because Portugal's economy um, is actually coming back uh, more quickly than a lot of other European economies post-pandemic. And the golden visa was used actually quite effectively in Portugal to kickstart the economy there and is now being very, you know, in retrospect, is being applauded as something that was an incredibly effective economic tool where you're right to say that at the beginning it was sort of criticized and, and they thought that, the, you know, this could bring undesirable money or undesirable business interests into Portugal that by and large hasn't materialized. And I think that might be something why Thailand and, and these countries in the Caribbean are copying what uh, an idea that essentially began in Portugal. And it's the it's at the time I remember one of the things about the scheme in Portugal and I I feel like the one in Cyprus is similar is that when you invest in property you also had to create a certain amount of uh, jobs as well. And that, of course, helps kickstart the economy in a very different way than just investing in government bonds. And it will be interesting to see if after, you know, as the world starts to unlock and people start to travel further away from where they live and feel more comfortable with their travel for longer periods of time, if other countries will follow suit. I'll I'll be curious to see if in the next couple of months um, that's something that's going to happen as well. Well, let's move on to the final story that you have for us today. And we're back in the Financial Times on this one. And also kind of a post-pandemic recovery trend that we're following here. But this time we're looking at New York retail. That's right. So... This is, I think we're in the New York Times on this one, if we're getting confused between our times. But anyway, this is, so we're in the business section of the New York Times um, print edition for today. And it says, New York retailers rethink Midtown. And even if you haven't been to Midtown Manhattan, you probably know what Midtown Manhattan looks like from TV and from movies. And that is, it is chock full of stores. Um, and it's restaurants and retail and pharmacies and places basically to go and spend money. Um, what's happened, the New York Times tells us, is that the Delta variant has essentially postponed the anticipated return of New York retail. People aren't coming back to their offices as quickly as was anticipated. They're not spending their money in Midtown. A couple of really interesting statistics out of this story, um, and that is that the number of clothing retailers, pharmacies, and restaurants in Midtown is down 17% since 2019. <laughs> Uh, 44 Starbucks have closed in Manhattan alone. And here's a real shocker. There were 60 pret a 
Oh, in, right? I had no idea. Well, exactly. I mean, <laughs> when you go to New York, you see them. They're there and you think, oh, my God, that's a Pret. Um, there were 60 Pret-a-Mangers in Manhattan alone. Only 30 of those so far have reopened. Um, and so, you know, a shocker in a couple of ways there from Pret-a-Manger. What the Times goes on to tell us, though, is that, you know, the flip side of risk is opportunity. And the amount of available retail space in Manhattan has skyrocketed. And there are new restaurants, new stores. And the New York Times points to the resurgence of international interest in setting up flagship shops and restaurants and, and, and sort of beachheads in midtown Manhattan from all around the world. It's interesting the the statistic you mentioned there about Starbucks because uh, when you know the beginning of Starbucks uh, major global expansion, uh, I remember studies coming up. I think it was a Harvard study that linked Starbucks to gentrification in a neighborhood, and you could kind of predict uh, how wealthy or busy or affluent an area was based on the amount of Starbucks shops that it had and the fact that so many are closed. It's a signal that things are not looking great. It, it's really interesting for now it, it, because you know in a, in a previous broad in this very studio, we talked about the closure of the Gap stores Mm -hmm. in the UK. And there was a time in Manhattan where, you know, every six blocks or so, there was a Gap on the corner. Um, And now that is every six blocks or so, there's a Starbucks on the corner. And the Gap has come and gone. Um, Starbucks has risen and for the moment has fallen. Um, And I kind of wonder what this means more broadly speaking about economic cycles and about the way people spend money. Um, You know, Starbucks coffee is not cheap. Um, Everyone has had to tighten their belts a little bit as a result of the pandemic. Um, You know, we'll have to see what happens to to Starbucks and those 44 stores that I think the New York Times tells us are permanently closed. Well, uh, and it will be interesting if the closures of all of this, you know, bring the rents down enough that other people can emerge, which seems to be the trend that we're all talking about, including here in London. Um, I don't know if you've noticed as well, but I have noticed a lot of more new independent shops re-emerging. Um, not an awful amount of them, but where a chain store used to be or where an empty space had been for years. Now, it might be just an, as a pop-up, but at least it's good to see some entrepreneurs uh, opening up their spaces. I agree with you. And I think we've seen that in, you know, we were just talking about how we don't live very far from each other. And I think that's happening in our neighborhood. And, and, and the great sort of paving over of the British High Street by chain stores um, appears to have opened up a little bit as a result of the pandemic. You're absolutely right. And and it is kind of refreshing. It's kind of a relief to see variety in what we're walking, in what we see when we walk down the streets. And I guess I only hope that it lasts and that when rents do go back up, that they're not squeezed out again. Well, Charles, this might be just the opportunity to open our own cinnamon bun shop. That's what I have to say <laughs> to this story. Charles Hecker from uh, Control Risks, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us Thank today. Uh, well, it's time now to hear from Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Here he is with his weekend column. First office copies of the next issue of Monocle arrived at Midori House on Wednesday. You'll get yours soon, I promise. It's the October issue, and it's had a bit of a redesign and content makeover. Nothing weird, just a wise update. More in the vein of buying a nicely fitting new jacket, rather than discovering a sudden penchant for caftans and cha-cha heels. But even so, the outfit switch came with some challenges. Swift changes of plans and some hair pulling. 
I may have also let out a strange wailing noise at one point that made me sound more like a constipated moose than an at-ease editor. Putting together a magazine is an amazing thing that, even after all these years, makes me feel privileged to do. But for everything to come together nicely, you need some finely tuned choreography to happen. Take something as simple as choosing a photograph. Matt, our photo director, will first do a select from the bigger shoots, perhaps picking 20 or 30 shots from several hundred. Then Rich, Sam or Maria will design the pages and, in doing so, make their select too, sometimes deciding to use just one image. Then it's my turn, and perhaps I will lobby for a small or even wholesale change if it doesn't quite tell the story that I think we need to get across. Also chipping in will be the page editor, perhaps the writer and the photographer, and without doubt, a certain fellow in Zurich. And finally, our production director, Jackie, may chip in as well as we prepare to go to press to one that say an image is not going to print well. Choose again. After often years of people working together, this all usually happens pretty effortlessly. But not always. And not always on a redesign issue when changes are being made late at night and people are heavily invested in a story. And nor should it. Making a page, choosing a picture needs belief, some passion and a careful understanding of when to fight your corner and when to back off and let Rich and Matt do their jobs. Rich, our creative director, is very generous to me, even allowing me to occasionally suggest how a story could even be laid out. He really knows that things are bad when I start sketching on a post-it note. But back to Wednesday. The magazine was sitting there right in front of me on my desk, but at first I tried to ignore it. I would have been far more relaxed seeing that constipated moose standing by my perch. After a few calls, attending to some urgent emails, do you have the caftan in Cerise by any chance? I gingerly opened it. Turns out there were no empty pages, nothing upside down. On Thursday, we convened a conference call with editors on the road, Tyler, the commercial team and the crew in London to go through every layout, every ad positioning. And finally, pages began to look like pages, not patchworks of tricky decisions, myriad alternative routes. Some magic was slowly beginning to happen. Perhaps you're surprised how collaborative making a magazine needs to be, no matter how high you inch up the masthead. There's a balance of confidence and humility, passion and patience needed from everyone in the room if you want to make something worthwhile and still remain friends afterwards. But of course, sometimes it's tough. And in those moments, there's always your inner moose to channel. And now, after all this, comes another test. And you get to turn the pages and hopefully don't wonder, why the hell did they choose that picture? Thanks, Andrew. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. My thanks to our studio engineer, Sam Empey, and also to our producer, Marcus Hippie. I'm Carlotta Rubello. Monocle on Saturday returns next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.